You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is Episode 62, covering the week of March 6th through March 10th, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. I just want to do a little housekeeping, of course. If you like this podcast, uh, please share it around with your friends. Also, please follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, follow our YouTube page, and go to our homepage, abbevilleinstitute.org, and give us your email address, and we will send you our Daily Dose of Dixie along with our weekly email and other correspondence. We also have our 15th annual summer school coming up in July, July 9th through 14th. Uh, so you can go on our webpage and check that out. Uh, there are some scholarships available for students, so if you are a uh, high-level high school student or a college undergraduate or graduate student, there are some opportunities for you to attend the summer school free of charge. Uh, so go out there and get the information on that. You must contact Dr. Livingston directly to be considered for a scholarship and also to uh, sign up for the summer school. We're not doing online registration this year. So uh, go on out there. It's going to be a great summer school, um, and I think that uh, everyone's going to enjoy the topic. Uh, the topic, of course, is the on being Southern in an age of radicalism, and uh, the idea is going to be talking about Southern identity and what that means today. So I think that uh, it's going to be a, a grand time, as our summer schools always are. So go out there and, uh, and sign up, get registered, and get a good education out of it. So a uh, few things to uh, discuss this week. Uh, we had, um, I think in some ways, a pretty eclectic week, uh, but all these pieces generally had a theme, and that theme was, uh, as the summer school is going to be covering, Southern Identity. Uh, there are some things that Southerners forget uh, when they think of themselves as th- as Southern. And also, we tend to forget, in some ways, the Southern political tradition uh, as we move forward and we get into partisan politics here in 2017. Uh, many Southerners, of course, supported uh, Donald Trump for president. He, uh, he won crushing majorities in the South. Uh, but there are some troubling things with the Trump administration. And uh, one of them is the uh, proposal for a vast uh, program of infrastructure that's going to cost around a trillion dollars. And so I'm going to start actually with the Wednesday piece first and then move into this idea of Southern identity uh, for the second part. But uh, this trillion-dollar infrastructure program uh, smacks of the proposals put forward in the early federal period for federally funded internal improvements. This is not something that's sexy that people like to talk about, but for years it was thought to be unconstitutional for the general government to construct roads, canals, bridges, uh, lighthouses, uh, and that that opposition generally came from the South. Now, not all, not all Southerners oppose these things, and at first, uh, for example, infrastructure improvements like lighthouses and harbors uh, were passed with fairly large majorities in the uh, in the first and second Congresses. Uh, but by the time you got to the early 19th century, and you had the administrations of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, uh, three Virginians, what is often called the Virginia dynasty, you had a general pushback against federally funded internal improvements from the executive branch. Now, each one of these individuals, but particularly Madison and Monroe, thought that federally funded internal improvements were a good idea. 
It's just they didn't think they were constitutional. So uh, Madison actually proposed in his uh, in one of his annual messages a sweeping uh, program that uh, Henry Clay or Alexander Hamilton would recognize. Um, it involved, uh, for example, the, the rechartering of a bank of the United States. It called for a national university, and uh, it called for, uh, you know, again, federally funded internal improvements, road projects. Uh, and this would have been, you know, something that John Quincy Adams might have proposed, or as I said, Alexander Hamilton or Henry Clay. In fact, I think you can make an argument that uh, the National Republican strain carried forward into the Whig Party. Uh, they had the economic program of, say, Alexander Hamilton, but uh, they were a little more suspicious at times of executive power than Hamilton was. So, um, you know, the, Michael Holt wrote a great book on the Whig Party. It's about a thousand pages, but he makes the point that the Whigs were not necessarily the heirs of the Federalists. They were more the heirs of the, of the National Republicans, like uh, the Madisonian program that was put forward uh, during his administration. And, of course, Madison supported a bank of the United States, and he thought internal improvements were a good idea. But he vetoed what's called the bonus bill after the bank was uh, rechartered uh, in 1816. We had the second bank of the United States, and John C. Calhoun presented what was called the bonus bill to use the extra funds from the rechartering of the bank uh, to build infrastructure. And Madison said, I think this is a good idea, but he vetoed it. And that was the accepted position for the Democratic Republicans, or just the Republicans, for years. Now, why did he veto it? Because he said, we need a constitutional amendment to do this. Jefferson had the same position, as did Monroe. And from that point forward, we never had a constitutional amendment that allowed the general government to build infrastructure. Again, roads, canals, bridges, these type of things. But uh, the Whig Party continued to agitate for it. And eventually, when uh, well, the war came, and Abraham Lincoln, who was Henry, Clare, Henry Clay's heir apparent politically, uh, came to office, and there were no longer any, any Southern opposition to uh, the, uh, the prospect of federally funded internal improvements. We started getting these things. The Constitution hasn't changed, but they became uh, accepted practice. This is the same thing, generally the same argument that Madison made with the bank. He called the bank unconstitutional in 1791. The Constitution hadn't changed, but as Madison said, you know, custom and precedent has made the bank necessary and proper for the government to do its job. So he had dropped the constitutional objections because the bank had been ingrained and it just became something that, you know, we do. And so this is what you can see with entitlement programs. The, the key to all of this in the Southern tradition had long been to oppose these things because they're unconstitutional. Even if the executive branch supported it, even if some Southerners supported it, the old Republicans, those who were most principled, often opposed these things because they were unconstitutional. And they pointed out over and over again, if you accept this, you're going to get, if you accept X, you're going to get Y and Z eventually. Uh, and once these things are put into effect, it's very hard to get rid of them. And so you're seeing that now, say, with uh, health care legislation. Uh, the Affordable Care Act has created a position where we have to have uh, you know, people think we have to have this type of legislation. The Republicans are not trying to dump it. They're just trying to modify it. So once you get these large entitlement programs, people are going to want them, and you're not going to get rid of them. So the key is to oppose them from the beginning because uh, once they're there, they're never going away. 
And I think that's essentially what the uh, old Republicans were doing here in the early federal period, uh, in the early 19th century, in the late 18th century, is saying, look, these things are unconstitutional, and you know, once we have these things, they're never going to go away. And so Madison's bonus bill veto is part of this early Southern tradition of opposing unconstitutional government. Uh, we just don't, don't think about it much anymore because uh, these things have just happened so often. We have the interstate system. Uh, we have the government building all kinds of infrastructure all the time. And I think that the, uh, the men of the Republican Party, which was, really wasn't a party like we think of today, Republican faction would be a more accurate assessment. Uh, they recognize that you know maybe internal improvements are a good idea, but the state should be doing it because the general government doesn't have the authority to do so unless we pass a constitutional amendment that's ratified by three-fourths of the states, uh, and this, this will make it legal then. And so Madison uh, thought that the, is the path we should pursue. Same thing with James Monroe, same thing with Thomas Jefferson. We just never had that amendment. The government just does it without it. And so that's important. This is part of the Southern political tradition. Uh, I think uh, you know Madison uh, was not as principled as he should have been throughout his political career, and um, I, I, you know um, Madison was almost the same person as president as he was at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, um, because he started advocating some of the same things, and I think you can see a consistent strain of kind of national uh, uh, national perspective in James Madison. He thought this was good for the whole of the Union. And he was willing to sacrifice at times maybe the interests of the South for the good of the Union. Um, And, uh, you know, for a section for the good of the Union, I think a lot of Southerners pursued that as well. They thought that, you know, the the Union was important. Uh, Nationalism was for the good of the whole. The general welfare of the Union meant something. Uh, And they were doing so in good faith. Even Calhoun, in advocating a tariff increase in 1816, was doing so in good faith because of what happened during the War of 1812. So um, Southerners were much more broadly conscious of a general welfare for the Union than Northerners. Their nationalism was almost always sectionalism. They only talked about nationalism when it, when it uh, uh, benefited their section. When it didn't benefit their section, they didn't talk about it at all. But Southerners were talking about nationalism, even if it didn't benefit their section. So I think you have a different perspective on these things. In the in the early founding uh, or in the founding period, of course, and then moving forward into the early federal period. All right, so it's a great piece. It's by Dave Benner, uh, our uh, our sitting uh, uh, scholar from Minnesota. Uh, he's um, he's written a great little book, Compact of the Republic, the League of States, and the Constitution. He's an independent uh, uh, scholar. doesn't uh, doesn't have a a, a PhD, but uh, he does good work and he loves history, and so he writes for us. And uh, I, I think it, we we appreciate his contributions. All right, so the rest of the pieces have to do with this idea of Southern identity. And uh, the first one is a piece on um, film in the South. And uh, Clyde Wilson does, does a fantastic job with that. He's written uh, several pieces on Confederate Hollywood for the Abbeville Institute website. And uh, this particular piece talks about a couple of films that deal with uh, the invasion of South Carolina in 1865 by Sherman's uh, army. And what actually happened? The the uh, films are Fire Trail and The Last Confederate, and uh, you can get them on DVD. Uh, you can get them on Amazon. But uh, what he points out in these particular films is that they're regional. Uh, they have regional actors, regional director. It's regional uh, talent, uh, and 
the subject material is regional. And, you know, he says this is actually, this actually makes these films better because it's more authentic. Uh, and I haven't seen these films personally, but, um, you know, he raves about them. And that idea of Southern identity comes out in these particular films. You know, oftentimes today we see uh, uh, shows or films that focus on the South, and they don't have any regional talent. Um, and they try to do a good job with uh, regional themes and, and, and um, you know, regional language. But sometimes they, f- they fall short of that. Uh, and... Fortunately, in some cases, they use English actors. And I know people bristle at that. What, you're going to use these Brits to come over and do the South? Well, a lot of times they do a Southern accent better than Northerners do. And they have a much more sympathetic portrayal of Southerners than Northerners would. Uh, that's not always the case. Uh, but what you find in, <laughs> in, these, uh, in these films that have to do with Southern themes and Southern topics, uh, generally you get uh, you know laughable caricatures of uh, the South from Northerners. They're just, they just don't do a very good job, but Brits do a much better job. Uh, however, I think, uh, yeah, as Clyde says in this, real American culture has always been regional, but that is the only way that our vast union can be fairly represented and where remnants of the real America are still to be found. So again, this is Southern identity. Real American culture is regional. Uh, and these films, because they are regional, point to that Southern identity. As he concludes the piece, he says, In those days they understood what George Garrett has written, that manners are a recognition that our fellow human creatures, all of them, are made in the image of God. Uh, one thing that's interesting, you know, my kids watch uh, for, for a long time, of course they're young, and uh, they watch, you know, television, kids' television shows, and on one of these, um, you know, kids' channels, I can't remember who was, uh, what, what channel it was, but they talked about manners, and they said, you know, manners are a way to show people that you respect them. Uh, that was a wonderfully Southern way to put manners. Uh, good manners are a way to show people you care about them and you respect them as a person. Uh, bad manners means that you're just an individual who doesn't really care about anybody else but yourself. And so it's important to understand what manners are. And a lot of times, you know, young people, even myself in my younger days, uh, didn't really recognize uh, manners all the time and, and how important they were. But as you get older, you do. And I think that uh, Southerners for years had instilled these things in their children. You're, you don't see it as much as you used to. Uh, but, you know, Hank Williams Jr. saying, we say grace and we say ma'am. If you ain't into that, we don't give a damn. Right? And that's that's the idea of of manners and how important it is. And, of course, you know, I, I, uh, I think that... Um, and, and as harsh as that particular statement was, it's important. You know, we want to have civility in the South, and we just don't do things uh, in the Southern identity. We need to start saying to people, we just don't do that down here. We don't, uh, we don't uh, berate women. Uh, you know, we don't treat people with, with uh, we don't disrespect people. Uh, and I think if we did that and called people out for these things on a more regular basis, uh, I think the South could show something to the rest of the United States. It started to lose this because of popular culture and other things. Southerners just don't have this same, uh, and particularly young Southerners, don't have the same respect as they used to. Uh, but uh, that was what made the South something unique. It's the way that people interacted with each other and the way people treated each other. And so I think if we could come back to that in some ways, we'd be doing a lot better with that. So this Southern identity is important when it comes to 
uh, things like manners and regional themes. And so the piece on Tuesday may seem uh, a little bit out of step with that. It's entitled God Gallop and the Episcopalians. It was written by Cleanth Brooks uh, in 1983, and it was about the uh, removal of the old prayer book from the Episcopalian Church. And in this particular piece, he talks about language, uh, how the old prayer book was so much better because of language. Now, Cleanth Brooks was a, a Shakespearean and Faulkner scholar, and so language meant something. In other words, regional dialect, and not just that, the old English language, which was more flowery and beautiful than contemporary jargon, and uh, he talks about how this is going to destroy the church, and I think as you move forward in time and you see what the Episcopalian Church has become and the things they accept, this was just one step here in the 1970s. This piece was written in 83, in the 1970s of removing that prayer book and changing the entire perspective on language and what that was going to do ultimately to the church itself. So you remove this tradition, this language in the old prayer book, and now you start to remove language as an anchor for a people. And you're seeing that in the South, the the the, uh, the um, removal of the Southern accent, you know, how important it was for people to have this identity, to, to say, yes, I'm, say it loud, say it proud, I'm, I'm Southern, right? Um, and... Uh, there are some people that still do this. I mean, you still have this in some music. Uh, you know, people are still saying, I'm Southern and I'm proud of that. Uh, and uh, I was watching a, a, a music competition uh, the last couple of, of weeks, and there are two uh, famous uh, musicians on there. Uh, one is from California and one is from uh, Kentucky, essentially. And uh, they are banter back and forth. And the one from California is always putting the one from Kentucky down because of his accent. He's always picking on his accent, who he is. And I think this is just playful, but it shows the priggish nature of Californians to put down the South. Now, uh, the artist from, from uh, Kentucky uh, is very proud of where he's from, and he, he openly says, look, I mean, this is who I am, and uh, if you want to be like this, come with me here. But, um, you know, be on my team, and I'll, and I'll teach you how to be a country musician. So there's a lot to it, a lot of pride there. But it shows you, you know, this constant push uh, of uh, people to put down what the South really is. And a lot of that has to do with language, you know, and how people sound and how they talk and the words they use and the things they say. I'm fixing to go do something. Uh, and I'm going to go to the, I'm fixing to go to the, to, the, to the store and use my buggy to get my groceries, my sweet tea and grits, whatever it is. I mean, these, these type of regional, uh, this regional color that uh, people are trying to get rid of. Uh, and that's a shame, and Southerners need to push back against that. And so this particular piece, even though it's on the old prayer book, it's about language and how important language is and how important it is to say things properly. And I think for years people recognized that, uh, and there was an old underlying culture here that was important to save in the South. Uh, and it was beyond the issue of race. It was something else. Uh, it was manners, it was language, it was customs, uh, it was, uh, you know, music, it was cooking. It was all these things that made the Southern people what they were. It was a political tradition of decentralization, of local self-government, of home rule. It was these things that made the South unique and important, and these things that the South can still offer to America. Uh, it was... As uh, John Shelton Reed put it, southernizing things, taking something from the north and making it more like the south. And it was that individualism, but 
working within a culture that made these things important. And so as we think about Southern culture and as we think about the Southern identity, as we go forward into our summer school, these are things that I think we need to, we need to uh, make sure we emphasize when we're talking about the Southern tradition. Say it loud and say it proud. You're Southern. Uh, you are what you are. And we don't do things down here like they do up north. We don't, uh, we're not vulgar. We're not uh, disrespectful. We have manners for people. We try to show people respect because they're God's creatures, because we, ex- uh, we respect them as a person and who they are. And I think if we did more of that, uh, the South could show America quite a bit. And again, other people recognize this. People like Russell Kirk, the piece we had on Thursday, uh, was by Alan Cornett, one of Clyde Wilson's students at South Carolina. Now he's an independent historian in Kentucky. Uh, but um, Cornett talks about Russell Kirk. Now, he clerked for Russell Kirk, essentially, was one of his aides for a time. And uh, he talks about how Russell Kirk was, was just enthralled with the South. Here's this guy from Michigan who lived on a farm in Michigan because he loved the agrarians. He thought the attack on Leviathan uh, by Donald Davison was one of the best books he'd ever written. Or ever written, uh, you know, and uh, when he was asked what book should have been, uh, you know, should have had more uh, attention, he said, Kirk said, The Attack on Leviathan. Uh, and so that book was reissued because of Kirk's insistence. You know, Kirk loved John Randolph. He loved John C. Calhoun. He thought these people were important for the American identity and particularly American conservatism, which is why he, he dedicated a chapter on them in his conservative mind. It's why he wrote for Southern Partisan Magazine. Uh, it's why he was interested in Southern themes, because he thought the South offered something more uh, to American culture than, than people recognize and people realize that people like Calhoun and Randolph were so important to the fabric of America that they should not be ignored. Uh, in fact, as... as uh, uh, Cornette points out, Kirk devoted an entire issue of his journal Modern Age to the South in 1958. Uh, And in the essay Norms, Conventions in the South, Kirk uh, defended the Southern tradition. As as Cornette says, he sounds more like a man from Macon, Charleston, or Lexington than Michigan. Uh, And he said the South was the last place to have this resistance to the leveling spirit of America. This is a quote from Kirk. Quote, the South, then, has been the permanence of America, the defender, sometimes consciously, sometimes blindly, of principles immensely ancient, of conventions that yet have meaning. The convictions and customs of the South perpetually irritate the radical reformer, who is impatient to sweep away every obstacle to the coming of his standardized, regulated, mechanized, unified world purged of faith, variety, and ancient longings. Without the South to act as its permanence, the American Republic would be perilously out of, jo- out of joint, and the South need feel no shame for its defense of beliefs that were not concocted yesterday. I mean, what a marvelous thing to say about the Southern tradition. Again, this is Southern identity. That statement alone should be read to every Southerner saying, don't be afraid to say you're from the South, to have your accent, to have the culture that we have, to have manners. Say it loud and say it proud, you're Southern. Don't be afraid of these things because you actually have the jewel. As one of my former advisors and undergraduate used to say, you know, it's of course it's a biblical teaching, but never cast your pearls before the swine. Be proud of who you are 
and show people who you are through action. Do the right thing and don't let people put you down because of what you are. It is beautiful. Being Southern is beautiful. It's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, and you and you lead through example. And again, that's, that's one thing we could get out of this movement that we have to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. That would be it. You know, the po- political stuff builds off the culture. Um, you can't really have a, a political tradition or a political culture without a real culture. So you need that real culture to make these things work. The reason that Southerners are so defensive of where they were is because their culture, they thought, was better. They were elitists in that way, and they didn't want somebody tearing down what they had or where they were from. And finally, I mean, a nice, a nice example of this is the uh, piece that we ran on Friday, H.L. Mencken in the South by Guy Story Brown. And he talks about this essay, Sahara of the Beaux-Arts, which is um, uh, written in 1919, where Mencken apparently put down the South. But what, what uh, Guy Brown says here is that it wasn't really a put-down of the South. It was a put-down of the New South. It was a put-down of what the South had become, some type of uh, you know, colony for the North, that what the South really should do was emphasize its old chivalric character. And Story Brown says this. He spoke bitterly of the bareness of the New South because Mencken was really a defender of the faith, an apologist for the old order, and a crusader for moonlight and magnolias. This is exactly right. In uh, the book that um, Clyde Wilson and I wrote together, uh, Forgotten Conservatives, he has a wonderful piece on Mencken in there that says this exact same thing. Uh, And he quotes over and over again how... The South should be, uh, should, the Old South is what Southerners should be, should be focusing on. Um, and he was highly critical of the North. He said the reason the New South is awful is because the North has colonized it. As Macon says, quote, The New England shopkeepers and theologians never really developed a civilization. All they ever developed was a government. They were, at their best, tawdry and tacky fellows, oafish in manner and devoid of imagination. One searches the books in vain for mention of a salient Yankee gentleman. And then he says this about the South. In the South, there were men of delicate fancy, urban instinct, and aristocratic manner, in brief superior men, in brief gentry. To politics, their chief diversion, they brought active and original minds, it was there that nearly all the political theories we still cherish and suffer under came to birth. It was there that the crude dogmatism of New England was refined and humanized. It was there, above all, that some attention was given to the art of living, that life got beyond and above the state of a mere infliction and became an exhilarating experience. A certain noble spaciousness was in the ancient southern scheme of things. The Ur-Confederate had leisure. He liked to toy with ideas. He was hospitable and tolerant. He had the vague thing that we call culture. Now, is that a rejection of the South? No. It's a, it's a, it's a celebration of Southern culture. As I said, Mencken would say it. Say it loud and say it proud. You're Southern. Enjoy it. From the South came all of these political traditions. Even some of the things that are bad, he says, that we don't like. But they came out of the South. They came out of the South. 
America would be nothing without the South. As I've said many times on this podcast, the South is America. And so as we look forward to our summer school in July, as we think about what the South can offer America, the Southern identity, that's something that we have to keep in the back of our minds at all times. The South is America. And without this Southern tradition, this Southern culture, we don't have America. We don't have it. Without this idea of the South, which is really a tangible thing, it's not just existing in our minds. Southerners had something that they held on to. It was a real culture. Without that, America is nothing. And if we give that up, if we start saying, you know what, it's backwards, it's wrong, we're not going to have a Southern accent, we're not going to celebrate Southern things, we're not going to have, we're not going to Southernize our music, uh, you know, we're not going to be proud of what our food traditions are, our folk ways are, our storytelling ways, our literature ways, our political ways. We're not going to be proud of these things anymore. We're just going to go along because the pressure comes from other directions and says we're backwards. If we give in to that, then we've lost everything. And I know there are young people that listen to this podcast. I know there are. If you can do anything, it's say it. You're Southern and you're proud. We don't do things like Northerners do down here. We don't care how you do it up North. This is how we do it here. Your way is not better. Your way is not innovative. Your way is not anything great. What we did, we gave America, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, those presidents. We gave America Andrew Jackson for all of his failings. We gave America James K. Polk for all of his failings and John Tyler. We gave America those things. We gave America John Marshall for all of his failings. That was something we did. You couldn't have had that from the North. We gave America that. We gave America, if you want to get down to it, Abraham Lincoln, right? Uh, I mean, as I, even though I wrote a piece very critical of Lincoln, and I, I'm not a Lincoln fan at all, but he was a part, at least initially, of Southern culture. There was actually a great piece we ran not, uh, a while back before doing the podcast on how the South would have won the war without the South because it was Southern leaders who were abusing the South, not Northerners. It was Southerners who were doing that. You know, George Thomas, for example, uh, and even Lincoln himself. So be proud of where you're from. Say, we don't do things like that down here. We have manners, we have respect, we have real old culture that's worthy of preservation, regardless of what some Midwestern or Western or Northern talking head has to say about it. We're proud of it. We are tolerant people. We always have been. We are people who respect other people because of manners. And if you do that, you put the other side on defensive. And now they're going to come back with some ridiculous thing about uh, you know, how uh, things were were awful in the South here or there, whatever it was. But you can come back with, no, actually, uh, our manners, as people talked about for generations, were well-documented and defined, no matter what you say. The South is America. Say it loud and say it proud. You're Southern. Until next time, good day. <laughs>